Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 89. I am Brooke and I am very, very, very glad that you're here. Ben laughs at me every time. I'm like, I am Brooke. I am Groot. Exactly. I just think of I am Groot, I am Robot, a number of... (laughs) I am Sam. I am Sam. So... Episode 89. 89, feeling fine. <laughs> feeling slightly moronic. Who, uh, who do you speak to in episode 89? Today I had such a lovely conversation with Jono Fisher, actually, from Wake Up Project. Uh, it's, a, it's an online community and an events. Uh, he event, organises events and his mission, basically, is to create... A kindness revolution in the world. A kindness revolution. It's a pretty awesome goal. Well, it is. Uh, but yeah, so Jono's a, an Australian guy. He's um, he's just become a dad for the first time. Lovely. And he's just he's just so uh, warm and and you know open and honest. Str- so strange. I uh, as soon as I finished interviewing Jono this morning, I had to run off to a, another event where I was talking about podcasting and, uh, you know, I asked people in the group if they listened to any podcasts and one of the women put her hand up. She said, oh, I'm only relatively new, but I um, I started uh, listening to uh, Rob Bell's podcast first. That was her first podcast. I said, oh, that's interesting. I was talking about Rob Bell this morning. She said, yeah, I saw him speak in Sydney uh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, oh, the, my interview this morning was with Jono Fisher who organised and, you know, facilitated the Event with Rob, so it's like a crazy small world. Yeah. Uh, but all that to say that, you know, Jono has he's spoken a lot at events and he also organises events, but he's also been exposed to some incredible people over the years and he's brought out, uh, you know, Brene Brown and uh, Rob Bell, uh, among many others, to talk about uh, happiness and kindness and compassion and creativity and you know living a, a good full positive life so he has a lot to offer and then his personal story is also really cool too which we get into i will say it's a very wide-ranging conversation <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> it just it's wide-ranging like i does I it meander yeah but not like not in a not in a wasteful kind of way no of course not just in a in a let's have a conversation and see where it takes us kind of way, which I which is how I always put the you know suggestion of being on the show to my guests. We have a conversation rather than I I come at them with a a list of questions, and quite often that means that I'll have an idea of where I think the conversation will go, but the end result is something quite different, and this worked out incredibly well. So I'm glad. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think I think you guys will get a lot out of the conversation with Jono. Um, I would strongly suggest that you check out his website, which is at wakeupproject.com.au. And, uh, you know, along with the events that he organizes, they also distribute these beautiful things called kindness cards. I'm not going to tell you anything more about them because we talk about them in the conversation, but that's where you go and find out about the kindness cards. And if you're in Australia or are going to be in Australia in uh, September, 22nd, 23rd of September, Jono and the Wake Up Project team are organizing the mindful leadership forum which brings together the most amazing group of speakers to talk about how we can incorporate mindfulness into our workplaces particularly as leaders and executives and things like that 
um, and it's maybe the second or third year that they've run it. I'm not quite sure, but it looks like an incredible um, incredible event that would be right up your alley, actually, yeah. po- pointing to you. I'm going to go. You should go. We should, we should both go, actually. But if you wanted to find out about that, the website is mindfulleadershipforum.com. They're probably the two places that you can check out Mr. Mr. John O'Fisher. Anything else to add, Benjamin? Slash 89. Yeah, slash 89. If you, you know the rest. If you didn't uh, get everything that you had just there, but I think you mentioned most of it. Then, yeah, show notes. Enjoy the conversation with Jono. Very, very well. Um, Thank you. Just for spent the morning. Oh, that's okay. We can both dive in at the same time. Okay. I, was just, I was just going to say, I just spent the morning with my young son, Max. Um, one of my favorite things now in the morning is just waking up with him, yeah. you know, and he has this incredible smile to begin the day, which um, I sometimes wonder how I lived without that smile, you know. Isn't that amazing? I mean, before you have a baby, you have your first child, you can't, you're, you're so excited, you're really looking forward to it, but you can't quite imagine what it's going to be like with them. Yeah. And then they arrive and you forget what it was like before yeah. they ever arrived. I remember driving home from hospital after our first child was born um, and everyone was just going about doing their thing. Uh, and I thought, I mean, not for those people, but for me, everything has changed. Like, mm. Everything has changed now. Yeah. Uh, it's phenomenal. So how old's Max? He is, he's just turned three months. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny because I, 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 I swore that I would never be one of those people where I would kind of say how much my life has changed and how different my life is and rah, rah, rah about having a baby. And yet I can't not say that. You know, and not to say that it's better or worse, because I actually am not really a fan of like, you know, your life doesn't start until you have a baby. Or I just kind of, I just really don't like that. I think life is either, you know, you have what you have in your life. But wow, he has brought so much joy into my life and, and completely reorientated. I actually feel like I'm in the middle of a process right now that is unfamiliar to me at some level. Yeah, as to kind of who I am, what I'm up to, what's important to me, and it's all because there's this other being living in our home yeah. now. Yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, my husband and I were talking just the other day about um, this is not at all where I imagined our conversation to begin. But it's okay. <laughs> that's yeah. what I like about them. Uh, yeah. About us at, when we got married, we were 24, 25, you know, relatively young, and we were talking about how we went about you know planning our wedding and things. And he said it's just. It's just not us, you know, what a, what a strange way to have done it. And so that's because I don't think we knew each other then. And mm. while I think that, that everyone's, uh, you know, sort of life trajectory is different and they find themselves at different, different points in time, for us it was absolutely, um, you know, the questions and the decisions and the shifts that we had to make as a result of reprioritising when we had kids. And that was really the, the kind of catalyst for us figuring out who we are and what was important to us. Mm. Uh, and I like, like I said, I don't think it's that's necessarily the time for it to happen. But for us, that was it, and it was really interesting to look back with a bit of 
time having passed, you know, kids are seven and five now, and to realise that their arrival made us kind of stop and, and really question what was important. And, mm. uh, you know, as a result, we've kind of changed everything. Because mm. so, yeah. you're up in the Blue Mountains we now, yeah. right? Have you, did you move to the Blue Mountains from somewhere or are you like from there? Or? We grew up in the area. Um, yep. But then when we got married, we moved to the city for a few yep. years and, um, you know, had a, a few good kind of crazy years in living in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when we were pregnant, we found out we were pregnant with our first child, we decided to move back to the mountains. Huh. Um, yeah. So that was, I mean, that was a physical shift that kind of happened. But yeah. we, um, yeah, we've, we knew what we wanted our kids to experience yeah. um, growing up. And that was where we were able to find it. And the mm. property prices hadn't exploded at that point. So, you know, sure. we had a, had a few more decisions open to us, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So there's so much that I want to talk to you about. But before we get into where you are now and what you're doing with Wake Up Project, I'd like to go back about eight years mm. to your life mm. and ask what was life like for you? Well, I was a nanny, a male nanny. So what had happened was I was in the corporate world for about 10 years, um, kind of burnt out, was unhappy, semi-depressed. Actually remember the moment of sitting in a, or presenting in a boardroom and actually feeling like I wanted to throw up in the boardroom. It was like a very strong kind of visceral response Mm. to... A feeling of going the wrong direction in the stream. And my body was kind of responding to that. And I think I also had some kind of unresolved kind of issues and stuff that I needed to deal with. But, um, and, and the things on the outside seemed fine, you know, but just internally I was just kind of unhappy. And, you know, I think people can kind of relate to that feeling. And um, so I decided to take some time off. Um, just to kind of explore and kind of take a break. And after about three months of taking some time off, I realised that I didn't want to go back, uh, but I realised that I had to make some cash. So I saw a, an ad in my local newspaper or my local community newspaper, and it was advertising for a nanny position, a male nanny position. And I thought, well, you know, I like, kind of like kids, uh, I could do that for a couple of months and then come back to my normal kind of work. And I got this job looking after these two six-year-old boys. And it was a whole process getting this job, which I won't go into, but it was like actually interviewing to be like a CEO of a company. You know, they didn't tell me who it was and da-da-da-da. Anyway, I got this job. And the first night I got there, I was putting them to bed and I put the first boy to bed George and then I put Robert to bed and then Robert sat up in his bed and he looked at me and he said I'm so glad you're here and it was one of those moments where I knew that I would be there for a while um, which I was I was there for about five years yeah and that end of those were probably about the third or the fourth year would lead to about eight years ago uh, based on the question that you asked. Okay. Yeah. So you never went back to your corporate job? I didn't. Um, the whole nanny process was such a 
interesting process for me. Um, you know, the first year of being a nanny was so painful, uh, kind of egoically, very challenging. With this, so this family that I was um, nannying was a very wealthy family. So they'd often have like dinner parties and cocktail parties and such. And, and I knew, I was familiar with the faces of the people in the crowd, right? And so I'd often go up to these people and, or they'd come up to me and say, hi, who are you? You know, and I'd say, well, I'm the nanny here. And nine times out of ten, the response was, oh. Mm. And then they'd move on, right? And it was like, it was like a punch in the guts, yeah. you know, the senses. And it was this feeling that I had kind of dropped to the kind of bottom of the social ladder and I was, I was kind of like a nobody in this world of somebodies or supposed somebodies, you know, and, and the first year was kind of full of that angst and friends and my partner kind of going, what are you doing? You've kind of lost the plot. Really? You really want to do this? And parallel to that, you know, I had these two young boys who I had this relationship with who were really smart and bright and intelligent and they were teaching me so much. And then parallel to that, I was kind of working, what, four days a week. I wasn't starting work until three in the afternoon. So it was like, so I'd pick them up from school. Then we'd kind of play sport or go to the library or, or, or you know, kind of normal after-school things, dinner. Then I was home and so I was having like, all my days during the days off and then I had a three-day weekend. Um, so I had all this time to actually explore a whole bunch of things that I never usually had time for. Mm. Um, so things like meditation or the arts or social change or just going for walks and swims. You know, it was this completely um, – it was a, just a deep healing time for me. Mm. I kind of got to the end of that first year and, and I felt so comfortable with who I was and, you know, that feeling when you're in your skin and you feel like I just feel really comfortable with who I am. And i never forget this time when I was walking down a local park nearby and I was walking down to a beach and I kind of was conscious of the fact that, you know, I'd cut back my salary, I'd cut back expenses, you know, I was living a really simple life. But I was walking down this, this gully of this park and looking around and I actually felt like, I felt like royalty, you know, I felt like I had everything. And it was nearly like a feeling like I was just really present to what was actually happening in my life and I could see the trees and I could hear the birds and I could hear the crashing waves, you know, up ahead and and there's this sense of like, wow, I don't actually want anything else than what I have right now. And um, so that was kind of the foundation, I guess, of starting Wake Up was this. And then the, the question, I guess the question that came out of that were, was, would there be other people who were also interested in these kind of topics? Because I was also really interested in the wisdom traditions and what was um, just what had been kind of part of human history when it comes to, you know, uh, ancient teachings and such and one of the kind of common threads that is kind of obvious um, but profound is this sense of um, compassion and kindness being really the pinnacle 
of uh, what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought, what would it, you know, would there be a bunch of people or a community of people who would like to come together um, and explore these kind of topics and try and become kind of people? And so I booked a cinema, um, which was probably you know, seven years ago now, and I uh, thought, well, if I'm going to kind of combine meditation and speakers and wine and chocolates and live music and film and we can explore some, yeah, explore yeah. some interesting stuff and see whether people would come and I was terribly nervous that mm. like, no one would show up and that I'd be embarrassed and, and you know, kind of hoped and prayed that like half the cinema would be filled and... Um, to my surprise, like the cinema filled and sold out and um, I was so humbled actually. But what I began to see, this is what I guess was most interesting for me, Brooke, was that there were hundreds if not thousands of people who were also interested in the same things that I was. And I started to hear this comment over and over and over again, which was, it's so nice to not feel alone. And these are people who were in suits, who were obviously professional people, who had their lives together, but there was something about a certain kind of conversation that wasn't being had Mm. uh, in their normal kind of day-to-day environments that when they would come to one of our events, they'd feel kind of connected to something and to each other uh, in a way that um, brought more meaning, I guess, into their yeah. And I think it's that idea of connection and that not being aloneness that is key to like the movement that you're creating. Because mm. I think people a lot of people do want more. They want more depth, they want more connection, they want more community. But as you say, there's these conversations that just aren't happening in the wider you know, the wider world. And I think when people find that it's it's like coming home. Yeah. 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 So and I think I think, well, no, I, t- I totally hear you. And I think as when we were talking earlier about Rob Bell, you know, I think the thing I found most interesting and what he shared a lot about was, you know, this conversation around because often when you kind of get into meaning you, or, or spirituality, you kind of edge up against kind of do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? And, and you know, and I'm with Rob. Or he, he, he was kind of saying it's the most boring conversation in the world as to whether you believe in God or not. But there's all these really interesting topics and areas to explore that wisdom traditions as a, as a, as a kind of body of knowledge have to share and rituals and such that could potentially enrich our lives so much and yet we often stop it because we go, hey, I, I, hold on. I don't want any of that religious stuff. I'm not, into, I'm not into God. And it's like, hold on, this is like human history, you know, and there's a lot of meaning to be found. So, um, you know, and we're clearly not a religious group, you know, that's not in any way of kind of interest to us, but exploring a whole bunch of wisdom traditions and what they have to offer definitely is. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what you're doing here in these kind of conversations is – kind of exactly the same thing, you know. Like I don't see what we're doing as really separate to what so many other people are doing. I think there is a movement of which we're part of that is all about kind of going deeper and talking about what, what really matters and reminding us of our connection with each other. Mm. 
It's that idea of what really matters as well, I think, that underlies almost everything. Like you say, there's so many there's so many movements and so many people talking about it, even though it's probably still not enough because people are still finding us and saying, I thought I was the only one. Mm. But it's you know, it's growing. And um I think that that underpinning of what's really important, that that values based living is is really the key to it. And people will often kind of, like you say, they sort of parallel it with religion or, you know, those kinds of conversations and it doesn't need to be, um, mm. you know, and I think it's often not helpful to draw like, too many parallels because there are so many people who are like, well, well, I don't, no, thank you, I'm not interested, you know, whereas I think there's so much to gain from just having a conversation about something like kindness which is one of the, you know, the things that the Wake Up Project is really about, which is creating this kindness revolution, which I love. Can you tell me what you see the kindness revolution as being? Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic, kindness. You know, at one level it's really, it's really simple and surfacy at one level and another level it's so profound in um, what it has to offer. So, I mean, my... As I mentioned, mentioned before, my interest in it came because I saw this theme being the one theme that was across so many traditions. And I remember also hearing when the Dalai Lama was asked, um, you know, what is your religion? And he said, my religion is kindness. And it just kind of rattled around in me for a long time, this sense of how could this person who so many people look up to, who represents the thousands of year tradition, sum up his whole religion in that one word. And so that became the kind of beginning of an exploration for us, of which I think we're just beginning, to be honest, too. Um, for me, um, it was kind of all around um, kindness to yourself, kindness to other people and kindness to the earth, and that became kind of like the ethos of w the areas we could explore. And... You know, the first thing that we did was we developed these um, kindness cards, which are free, that we've sent out about 300,000, I believe, of these. Um, yeah, so they arrive in people's kind of mailboxes, um, kind of a beautifully designed pack, and they encourage people to do anonymous acts of kindness for other people. Um, and, you know, we hope that it's kind of playful and experimental and... Um, and just encourages people to see that these very small acts can have such a profound impact. I mean, I remember I heard a story recently of a, a woman who was a professional woman. Um, you know, her life was as together as anyone else's life, I guess, is together. And she had had a number of um, miscarriages and she... Um, had recently had a miscarriage and had really kind of um, really impacted her, you know, and I think the cumulative effect of trying and then losing um, a baby like that. And anyway, she'd taken some time off and on her first kind of outing after her time off, um, she went to her local uh, coffee shop and... She went to order the coffee and then realized that she'd left her purse at home. And just in the, I think it was a combination of her just feeling still kind of flustered and not really thinking clearly. And the barista leaned over and gave her a kindness card and said, it's okay, someone's already paid for your coffee. And 
she said to me it was in that moment that she realized the world was a safe place again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, who, who would have known? The person that paid for the coffee may have done it playfully, may have done it you know, randomly and flippantly or just like I'll give it a go. But for this woman, it was like a reorientation point mm -hmm. for her whole life to go, oh, the world's safe, you know. And I think that's the most interesting thing about kindness is it's the, the acts towards other people are often so small and so um, at your fingertips that we forget that it actually can have this kind of impact in people's lives. And I know even for myself talking about because I talk about it a lot and there have been times in my life well, over these seven years where I've kind of got tired of talking about it, right? Because it's like, gosh, I'm talking about kindness all the time. And yet then I hear these stories and I go, oh, just come back, Jono. Come back to actually why you talk about this because of these stories and because of the impact it has. And, um, and there's something also I think about kind of glorifying or bringing a sense of nobility to small things again that I think kindness does. Um, and it's not about it being kind of syrupy or sentimental either. It's actually about acknowledging our connection with each other. Yeah. I think that's what kindness does. And I think the root of kindness is like kin, like in you know, the first three words, so kin meaning family. And I think that's the origin of it. It reminds us that we are kind of an actual fa human family. Um, so that's one component, you know, of the uh, – tell me if I'm rambling on. No, as well. I'm, yeah. I'm loving this. Yeah, yeah okay. And, I mean, the, the, the second component, which is uh, kind of not as formalized yet, but, I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but just is the notion of kindness towards yourself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people often find it hard to be kind to other people when, they, when this relationship with yourself is kind of harsh or um, – when there's like a bunch of self-loathing going on. And, and i, I got to say, that's over the years, it's one of the things I've noticed most in, in my conversations with people is that there is this barrier between a person and actually what they want to do with their life or how they really want to show up in the world, and it's called self-loathing. Mm. And um, the only remedy that I know uh, that, that consistently works is um, developing a kind of friendship with yourself that you would literally have with um, a dear friend and a friend that would stick by you through all the toughest of times when you've fucked up or um, made mistakes or, you know, just done stuff that you're maybe not proud of and, and a friend who just goes, hey, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here with you. And they and they never say anything other than supportive words, and so that sorry. No, no, no. I think there's yeah. so much wisdom in that because I mean that's something that I personally have struggled with for a long time, you mm. know, and it's taken years and years and years of you know two steps forward, fifteen steps back of dealing with that. But um, you know, I, I, I when our kids were born, I had really severe postnatal depression, and mm. a lot of that was sort of exemplified in anger and you know rage and just this seeing red all the time and um you know looking back a lot of that was tied up in how i felt about myself like, which was an additional layer to the postnatal depression like they weren't the same thing but um you know it, it's been 
seven years of learning to like who I am and you know and it's even hard to say still but that I have something to offer the people around me um you know that now means I'm a much more compassionate person both to myself to my family specifically and then to people in general but there's just such a correlation there between how we think of ourselves and you know being able to show ourselves kindness consistently that means that we can then we've got these reserves of kindness that we can then pass on to people I think that's really interesting and how have you worked with that oh it's been a long slow ugly process (laughs) um I joined the club though too you know I think there's something human well I you know I think there's something I used to find, and I'm keen to hear your answer, but I just want to say that, you know, people used to come to these events and, and nearly the sense of um, like an exaggerated sense of, oh, my gosh, it was an amazing event. Mm-hmm. And I often think it wasn't really that amazing. Like I didn't think it was that great. And what I figured out over time was that people were hearing other people on stage share what was really going on for them. And I think people were like, oh, my gosh, it was nearly like a, it, it was an exaggerated response because it's like even when I hear you say, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, kind of a brutal process, yeah. like you go, ah, oh, thanks, for, thanks for saying that because that's what happens for me too. Yeah, yeah, I totally. You know, it's, it's a weird kind of confessional thing that when people do it, we go, ah, oh, great. I somehow feel better about myself because Brooke's going through it as well and so is Jono. Exactly. No, seriously, I think there is so much. I mean, this is taking it off on a bit of a tangent, but having those conversations or being, unaf- well, no, being prepared to be vulnerable, not being unafraid, but um, being prepared to be vulnerable and, you know, share things that are difficult or ugly or brutal or, you know, a bit sad or make you feel a bit shit about yourself, even in the sharing of them, you're going to feel better. You know, mm-hmm. And that's what I've discovered and that's when people respond more. You know, mm-hmm. Over the years I've shared a lot of that process, mm-hmm. not in its complete raw form because I need to be able to process it and be okay with it before I share it because yeah. I think that there's damaging effects of sharing things too raw for me yeah. personally. Um, but, yeah, I think being able to share that ugly humanness, which is in itself not ugly but just, you know, communal um is is really important yeah but for me it's been um i mean so i went and saw i spent a lot of time seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist when i was first diagnosed with postnatal depression but i spent i've spent a lot of time figuring out who i am and what i need and what recharges me and re-energizes me and spending time doing those things Mm -hmm. but also just learning to let go of comparisons and expectations both internal and external and being okay with things being in flux and messy and imperfect you know because I carried that idea of perfection around for a long time and it was beyond useless it was really damaging you know it really taught me to think that nothing was ever good enough Mm. and it's been a very gradual sometimes almost impossible process of letting go of that Mm. And that's been mirrored with, you know, with, with changes that I've made to how we live. We've just let go of all of our clutter and stuff and crap that was weighing us down. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's, that again has been mirrored with how we work and how we spend our days and how we spend our time as a family. And it's all been this kind of tangled web of, of 
changes that then open up other changes and they open up other pathways and areas and things to, to improve on. And more recently it's been practising mindfulness, um, meditating, getting into being physically active again, and but just also single-mindedness and single-tasking and, and focusing on one thing at a time. And they all, all those things in and of themselves don't sound very impressive, but when you pull them together, uh, it starts to make things entirely different. And, um, yeah, the inside of my head for the first time ever is probably a friendlier place than it isn't, so which is nice. Yeah. I mean, they don't sound like small things at all to me. Mm. Like you mentioned those things and, you know, particularly the seeing someone, you know, seeing a psychologist or or someone external and neutral who can support you in your life you know like that's been such a big part of my life mm. you know there's no way I could have done what I've done without the support of a therapist someone who's kind of in my corner who's just there to support me um, who has no judgment who's independent um, you know I, I often wonder how people actually do it how actually people get through life without that person, mm. you know, because I think we've always had someone, we've always, it would have been like a witch doctor or a priest or a shaman or someone, the family doctor that visited your house, you know, in, in times gone by, there would have been that person yeah. that you would confide in and speak to and they would share their kind of wisdom with you and help you get through periods. But today, you know, I think the role of a therapist is probably the most, one of the most sacred roles that there is mm. to listen to someone and guide them through something. And, and, and the idea that there's stigma around that still, I go, oh, my gosh. Like, because I, I don't consider myself someone who has, like, major kind of mental issues, but it seems to be still a good thing to do maybe when you're actually going through, like, a mental illness. But I think it's like a, like a maintenance thing, if it's possible. You know, people, because I understand it costs money to do that and such, but... Wow, even in, even in our, my relationship with my wife, you know, like we are so thankful to have a therapist to go to because, you know, we just get stuck in things. And to have this neutral person go, hey, Jono, did you notice how you just said that to Claire? And it's like, no, I actually didn't. <laughs> you know, it really helps. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I could kind of talk about so many of those things that you've mentioned that, I think are such awesome discoveries to actually being able to do what you do right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it does amaze me that it's still, is, there's a stigma attached to as well to, to seeing someone be a therapist, psychologist, whoever. Yeah. Um, because I mean, I credit the woman that I spent many hours with, um, with like saving my life basically, mm. you know, and, and allowing it to turn around. Yeah, uh, and just that safe place was amazing. It's I, I, as you were talking, the irony of it that people need somewhere safe to share uh, in like a world that is full of oversharing is is kind of interesting to me. But sharing something on social media or you know connecting with someone who's yeah um, close by you personally is very different to being able to share with someone who is completely neutral and without judgment and there to to help you. Definitely. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about the kindness cards, and I wanted to touch on it, was that you encourage people to um, do these kindness, these acts of kindness, anonymously, which mm. I think um, is is both really it's really encouraging because I think to be kind to someone to their face, uh, 
unbidden can be a really scary thing. You know, hmm. if you see someone who's rummaging through their purse looking for money to pay for their coffee or their groceries or something like that and you think, maybe I should step in, I'd like to help them. Hmm. The, the fear is, and it's almost certainly unfounded most of the time, that they're going to turn around and yell at you because they don't need your help. Hmm. You know, so I think it's interesting about, uh, you know, that you encourage people initially to start with an anonymous act of kindness. Do you hmm. think that people then take that experience and then move forward and start to do things out of kindness, not anonymously? Is that your hope? Like, do you hope that people are going to then take that, that uh, you know, that initial moment of kindness as yeah. an, use it as an impetus to then continue on into a life of kindness? Like, is that what yeah. you're looking for? Or? Well, it's, it's, that's an interesting question. I, because people have often said, oh, why don't you do an app and you can track it and da 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 and see where it goes and da 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 There's something about what happens beyond that mm. that I for some reason, just don't think about. Okay. And, and it's just because it's kind of similar to what we were talking about before, that it's, it's experimental and I just kind of want to put it out there and, and just see what happens. And I think it's too difficult a thing to even hope that someone would do this and then they would do that as a result of doing this. But what I do hope, the one thing I do hope, is that people, when they do these small acts of kindness, just realize how profound they are. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's really the end game for me, to just to go, wow, at my fingertips, I can literally, I could finish this call with you right now and I could go and do something and it could literally change the direction of someone's day, potentially their week, their month, their year. And I've seen it over and over again and you, then... I still hear people saying, oh, I feel like I want to make a difference in the world. don't really know what my purpose is. You know, how do I contribute? It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's wind this thing back. Right now, in this moment, you could close your eyes and you could ask the question, whose life could I touch today? And there will be someone, there will be a a name or a face that will uh, come into your mind and then you can do that thing. Mm. And it can be as little as a text message, can be as, as little as a phone call, a note, whatever it might be. And if, and if we really think back, if I think back in my life, it has only ever been these small things that people have done for me that I go, man, that's everything. You've actually made the difference to me, mm. you know. And so that's really my hope, you know. My hope is that people just kind of stay with, the idea that right now I could do something. I could do something right now. Because I think that our, our tendency is to look at that big picture, you know, what can I do? I'm only one person. And feel overwhelmed, I think, yeah. and feel com- like tiny and insignificant. Yeah. Which, you know, if you line up the entire population of the planet, fine, we're one. But to the person that we help, <laughs> you know in whatever way, shape or form, that we are the person who has helped. To them, we are significant. Yeah. I think that that idea of small changes and small, um, you know, small actions, I think that's where the key to, to change in every aspect of the world lies. Because mm. I think when we feel like we can't do anything because we're just one person, we're too small, mm. that's where our powerlessness comes from. 
Yeah. If you can think about, well, what can I do? What's in front of me right now? You know, what, what about my life do I want to be changing? What about someone else's life do I want to be changing? What can I do that's right here, right in front of me in this moment? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a powerful thing. so powerful and transformative for you and for Mm. others you know and i think i think that's also part of this this kind of general i would call it a lie i guess that's been kind of perpetuated you know in a culture that basically keeps saying you know when you get this you'll be happy you know or when i get that or when i have this and and i think the great paradox is that actually when you give to another or when you learn how to take care of yourself and then naturally give to others, that's where all the juice is. Mm. That's where all the meaning resides. And and I think it's a it's a kind of a countercultural message, similar to what you're doing with your podcast, you know, like a slow home. It's like, what do you mean? We're a speedy world, yeah. you know, faster the better. And you know, I remember this um I remember reading a long time ago about Mother Teresa when she came to America for the first time. You know, she got off the airport and all the press were there and like, oh, Mother Teresa, she, she'd kind of walked around for a while and, and they said, you know, what do you think of America, you know? And uh, her first comment was, um, where are all the smiles? Mm. And they said, what do you mean? She said, I see more smiles in the slums of Calcutta than I do here. And then at another point they said, oh, Mother Teresa, how do you change the world? And then that's when she said this um, you can only ever do small acts with great love. You can only ever do small acts, you know, and it's this kind of constant reminder that it's, it's it, yeah. you know, and, um, and it's also the easiest thing to overlook because it's so simple. Exactly. And I yeah. think we look at, you know, we look at the big picture all the time. We look at the person who climbed Everest. We look at, you know, that someone who's written 100 books. We look at those people yeah. And we see that. We see the end result. We don't see the first step and then the second step and then the third yeah. step and every subsequent step afterwards. We don't see the first page or the second page and the first rewrite and the second rewrite. We just see the end. Yeah. And we're a culture of instant gratification. You know, yeah. We look at that and we think, that'd be really cool to climb Everest. Can I do it next week? You know, I'd yeah. really like to write a book. Oh, it's hard. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I think... Um, and that's another part of the, the slowness for me. It's it's recognizing that it's all just a process and there's not necessarily an end result, like there's not a destination necessarily, um, but there's certainly somewhere to be heading, I think. Yeah. Um, so we were talking before about your son who mm. is three months old. Mm. Um, how has his arrival impacted your ability to live mindfully? Do you feel... Um, I mean, in a practical sense, is it harder to stop and take that time, do you think, to, to kind of pay attention or is it easier or both? <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite the opposite. He, I think his very presence mm. has helped me to be present and he can't operate any other way mm. than um, by being with you in a very embodied connected kind of way mm. i'm i'm still i get very moved looking into his eyes and you know he holds a gaze for so long uh with with no flinching you know and he kind of reminds me of our and my own nature this kind of radiant glowing mm. 
nature that's that's there within all of us. And he reminds me of that of, as I look to him. You know, I had this um, had this massage recently. And uh, this woman, I'm not really into kind of visualizations and stuff like that. It's just for some reason I just don't really connect to it. But anyway, she'd taken me into a really deep massage. And at the end of it, she said, I want you to um, visualize yourself going into this um, field. And you go into this field and I went into this field. And she said, see this little boy in the distance. And as you come closer to this little boy, um, kneel in front of him and look into his eyes and, and, and see him. And then when you see him, tell him how much you love him. And she then reflected on this is you. Now you're the little boy. And interestingly enough, I kind of came back from that visualization and she had her hands on my head and she's a, um, she's a Brazilian woman from a family that's actually, um, she doesn't like people referring to this, but a family of kind of healers in Brazil. But she had her hands on my head and she said, and just remember, I am your sister and you are my brother and we're here to help each other. Mm. And... This happened a while ago and it kind of really reminded me of when I look at my son Max to remember that he's a reflection of me and not to project or, or forget that all the beauty and the, the kind of purity and wonder that I see in him is actually all in me as well. Um, and so, you know, I think mine's just covered up with neurosis and conditioning and as is everyone's, right? And and I think when you talk about mindfulness for me, you know, I think I, I actually have found, I found it harder when he's not here because when he's with me, and I think this is one of the deeper tenets of mindfulness is that you, the more space you create for yourself, something kind of reveals itself and that revealing is you of your nature of actually who you really are um and who you really are is a lot vaster shinier than our mind or our thoughts or our construct of ego thinks that we are mm. and i think a newborn baby is such a tangible expression of our nature that that's why it feels easier him being around for me that's so beautiful. That is so beautiful because I think so often we hear the opposite in that people often say to me before they know my story, oh, you know, slow living mindfulness, wait till she has a couple of kids, you know. I thought, well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and, um, you know, and also they are the reason for this change having, you know, come about so significantly shifting the way that we're living. Uh, but I think so often we're told that having kids or, you know, having, you know, multiple kids, whatever, um, will make it more difficult to live mindfully. Mm. It's just really beautiful to hear your experience is the exact opposite for such beautiful reasons. Mm. Yeah. And I think... Well, I think... The, no, go on. <laughs> well, I think the other thing is he's, he's kind of got a rhythm yeah. as well. 
he's got a natural rhythm, you know, and, and initially it's like, oh, what do you mean you want to go to sleep? You know, like we're having a great time here. And, and you know, and then he'll go to sleep and then I think, well, why don't I close my eyes for a while, yeah. you know, and kind of follow him in this, you know, not like I'm taking naps all the time he is, but there's something about being led by him and being led by this natural rhythm that uh, really helps me. And I think I've also realized, and I'm sure you're really into this because I can already tell that you are, but he, how much happier he is with fewer things, yes. you know, like, like, uh, and, and kind of a, a, the less amount of stimulation we give him, the happier he is, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, if you give him too many things, he just, uh, he, he just gets overwhelmed. Yeah. And I, once again, I just, I can really relate to it. You know, I can really relate to this kind of paralysis and um, sense of overwhelm that happens when I get given too many choices. And when you were talking about one of your quote unquote tiny things that does, don't sound like a big deal, you know, one thing at a time, I go, that is massive because that allows you to actually do what you do. And I, in my experience, when I have too many choices or too many things, too many options, I go into a, like paralysis. Mm. I find it very difficult to move forward and I start doubting myself and everything gets fuzzy. And I think too I lose my radar, the thing that I listen to, the th- you know, when I get little kind of signals or little messages, yeah. it all gets fuzzy. It's like there's, there's no – it's all static, mm. you know. Um, Whereas he said, you know, Max is so happy with one thing at a time. Don't give me too much. And, and it's such a paradox because I think as an adult that can sound like, oh, you're not really doing much. But actually it's, no, I'm actually doing one thing at a time and I'm actually building something. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and that is the paradox, isn't it? I mean, people think that single tasking and doing one thing at a time is like okay, a you're cheating, you know, you're not cramming as much in as you physically possibly can into one yeah. day or one space or one, you know, one moment. And, uh, you know, it's that complete flip of mindset to thinking, no, I'm, I'm in this thing and I'm all in. I'm doing this one thing right now yeah. and then the next time I'll do the next thing. But it's just, yeah, it, it's sort of a scarcity sort of mindset. If I don't do it now, then maybe I'll lose the opportunity and so we try and do them all at once or we try and, you know, um, apply everything at once or have everything at once. And I think the opposite is actually, for me anyway, has been the case where physically far less stuff means far more space mentally and emotionally. And, you know, that to me has been one of the – that was really the key that unlocked the rest of the, the process for me. It was just, you know, getting rid of a lot of the clutter and, um, you know, allowing us the space and the time to do those those things one at a time and yeah mm. give give things and people specifically and experiences the space and time that they deserve really mm. yeah it's so good so you're you're actually just having conversations with people about these kind of topic areas yeah encouraging more of this going yeah. on in people's lives yeah yeah we just i mean look we we i've talked to people about loads of different areas that are all applicable to slowing down simplifying getting more present from like a neuroscientist to um, Donnie McClurkin, who um, he's a, an economist. Oh, I know Donnie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Donnie's awesome. It was a really interesting conversation. I was super yeah. nervous when I was going to talk to him because I'm like, I have no idea what he's what I'm what I'm going to talk about. But he was wonderful. Yeah. 
um, you know, and yeah, Carl Honoré who writes about slow living and uh, it just gives people the opportunity to think about these things from maybe a different perspective because I think if it was just me banging on about getting rid of stuff and then, you know, moving on to this next thing and then moving on to this next thing, it um, that suits some people but maybe for someone else to see it from a different point of view is, is going to be helpful and allow them to start making those changes slowly over time. Mm. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I really love it. Some of the things that we uncover are just amazing. and People come back to me a year after I've recorded an episode and say, there was this thing, you know, that Donnie said or this thing that Kate said and I've been thinking about it for months and I've just done this and now this is happening and, yeah, it's, it's awesome. Interesting. Mm. You know, the, the, the other thing that comes to my mind when you was talking about that was, um, you know, we had this speaker, Rob Bell, recently, you know, and he's, he's written a lot and he kind of he's a, he makes stuff. Mm. So people that make stuff, I'm always curious to know their process, you know. And he said that... Um, one of the things he finds most common is people saying, knowing what they want to do. So they might start and they know the first step, but then they go, well, hold on. What about step three? And, oh, geez, hold on, get to step three. What about step seven? Mm. And he was saying that if you actually start with step one, what step three is is going to be really different than what, what step three looks like before you started step one. Yeah. So you can actually only start with this one thing at a time. And he said, he said a, a, a good life, particularly creatively, becomes more and more narrow, 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 meaning you're only working on one or two things. Yeah. Yeah. You're so clear about that that you're basically saying no to everything else so that you can actually keep moving forward. And he said there's all these other good things, but he said they actually become enemies in your life, these good things, enemies of actually what you're up to. And he said the ability to say, no, I actually know what I'm up to and, and continue to work on those things one step at a time, he said is such a, such a critical piece, you know. And, and, and when you were talking about the, and when we were talking about the, you know, how you feel about yourself, um. He said one of the most boring things that you can do is ask yourself, um, what am I not? Mm-hmm. And to compare what, and, and compare what you know about yourself with what you know about other people. Absolutely. And the enormous amount of what he calls, um, he calls it like an energy stewardship, right? So, you know, there's so much energy that gets expended when you're in the process of comparing what you know about yourself with what you know about another person. It's actually like a leak of energy kind of going out of you that could, if you stayed with yourself, like when you were talking about kind of like the mindfulness, if you stay present to you, if you stay present to the next step, you're in a way also conserving energy mm. and you're focusing energy towards something as opposed to dissipating it everywhere with, oh, holy crap, look what that person's up yeah. to. Oh, my gosh, well, I'd love to be doing that. And by the time you actually get around to doing what you need to do, there's nothing left. There's no energy, you know. I can relate um, to that so heartily. <laughs> oh, same, same. You know, and the times that you do manage to, to just pull in, you, you have the opportunity to make things. And that's, they're the times that I've been able to, to do things that I look back and go, whoa, that, yeah. that was pretty cool. And, you know, that focusing on just step one. And then yeah. just step two and just uh, – I love the idea of narrowing, you know, as you say, in terms of when you're making things and creating things. Yeah. Because that just gives you the, the opportunity. And also 
learning to do away with comparisons as much as possible too because yeah. for me as i mentioned before that's just been nothing but detrimental uh you know when i allow myself to dip into that too much it's just um you know really toxic just internally yeah. toxic because there is no way that we can compare what we know of ourselves to what we know of others it's it's you know it's apples and oranges it's it's yeah. it's nothing like uh you know nothing like the same thing yeah um, Jono, I could talk to you for literally hours about this stuff, um, but I'm mindful of, of your time and, um, yeah, maybe we can make time to have another conversation. But Let's do it. So let's, for... let's, let's do it again, Brooke. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed speaking to you and I really, um, I really mean that. Like you actually have a very lovely kind of manner and um, some people create the space for a conversation to happen. And other people, it's really quite hard to have the conversation because it's cramped in a certain way. So I want to thank you. And I really want to acknowledge the work you're doing. Like, because I can, I also know that with these projects, um, they're not always, well, certainly not doing it for the money. And that also indicates to me that you're in a kind of service. Um, to people, to yourself, to the kind of greater good. And I really appreciate that. Thanks, John. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.